G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. G'day, Ian here from the Hunters Campfire Podcast, coming to you from the car. Trusty sidekick embassy, we're on our way to Severn State Forest. Hopefully, this will be our first live around the campfire podcast quite interesting mark and uh, jono who you might remember from one of our previous episodes and his obsession with rocks and i think another friend of theirs booked the park for a few days and they're out here chasing goats so i'm on my way don't be heads up i might be coming and uh, hopefully we'll share a meal around the campfire with them and uh, have a bit of a conversation so hopefully it's a bit of fun we bought some new tech toys that allow us to take the podcast on the road try them out and um, yeah, just see how we go. So it should be a bit of fun. Hope you enjoy it. Cheers to you. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> so is yours working? Testing. Man, that dog is just going to destroy this whole studio. Yeah. <laughs> you can see it happening. Sit, yeah, come on. <laughs> sit down. Sit, sit, sit. So <laughs> okay, so since we've, since we've done the intro... To give everyone a picture of what's going on here. Uh, hang on, I can do this. It's recording. It says recording. Okay. So to give to give everyone a look, we're in camp. We are. It's dark. Um, in the spirit of Hunter's campfire over Jono's shoulder, there's a campfire, but we're all hiding under here so that you can see our good-looking faces because <laughs> there's not enough light over there for video. And what we have here is uh, the podcast machine. Look at that. Wires everywhere. A few beers, a few friends, and a dog that is really keen to walk through the middle of everything and mess it all up. So, And I'm here too. That's life in camp. Good to be here, fellas. It's great to be here. This is the um, first on-site Hunters Campfire podcast. It is. It's like those television series where they make enough money so they can do an outside broadcast eventually, like, you know, they go to Hawaii or something like that. (laughs) Well, that didn't happen. We're at Severn, and unless you're making the money and not telling me about it, then... I think the money was already spent on the trip. Yeah, yeah, and the cables. Yes. Anyhow, so we're here. Um, We're testing the gear out, and it's great, so it's working. So we should talk about something that's at least slightly interesting for now. And I think we've decided that we want to talk about gear, given the pants fail post that went up on Facebook earlier. Yes, I think that would be a very good idea. Do you want to talk to me about that? Uh, I do, but it's kind of like, it's. I don't want to bring it out too early. You know, it's like... <laughs> oh, it's the, it's, it's yeah, like the it's, climax of That's the right. Well, not climax, but you know, it's like, you've got to get it right. So... Okay, well then, well, let's, let's throw straight across to um, Jono. Who people will remember from kicking rocks over. That's correct. The yes, from the, from the Pilago and the, and the rocks. Okay, so um, good to have you out here. This is your first hunt for the year. 
first hunts for the year and first trip to Severn. So I was very intrigued by the podcast that you guys did. Um, and obviously I've spoken to Mark on several occasions about coming out here, but I've actually never been. So today's first full day in Severn. Um, lived up to the harp, really, it has. Except the animals. Except the animals. So I was always told there are lots of goats in Severn. Um, haven't seen any yet. Um, they're here. We know they're here, but we just got to find them. So conditions are tough. Um, it's not too hot, which is good, thank God. But um, there's a lot of water on the ground. Um, and there's some thick country with lots of burrs, as many of you would have seen on Facebook earlier today. Well, there's, there's a lesson. Now, if you listen to our previous podcast, and you have, haven't you? I have. I've listened to all of them, yes. You listened to the one where Jace took a new fella to Severn down into the southern block and turned him into a Sasquatch. Yes. Porcupine <laughs> hybrid. And, and yet you, you let Mark take you to the same spot. Um. Well, just, just to clarify... Um, no, he didn't allow Mark to take him to the same spot. John, I wanted to go down there. What was the draw card for the, the He's crazy. gnarly end of Severn? Yeah, so look, I want to see everything that Severn's got. I'm not here for just to see the good parts. I want to see the bad parts and experience it. Um, you've got to... You've got to see it all, and I wanted to to see what was what it was like down there. Um, and I'm never one to shy away from a tough hunt. Um, I like hunt to be a challenge. It, I don't want to <clears throat> drive around and shoot them from the truck. I want to, you know, walk the k's and put in the hide yards and and find those animals. So we we decided to to hit the uh, the harder block today um, to really get the the hard part out the way first. And it started off really well. There's some really good rock formations. We you know, we climbed up top and I'm pretty sure we heard a goat bleat. We think we did. Um, and we had to listen and stalk back up the rocks, but couldn't find them. Um, and so we carried on, had a look around the, around the dam, um, bit of sign, but not much, nothing fresh really. Um, and then we ended up in the thick stuff. Um, and that's where, yeah, the birds ended up all over the pants on multiple occasions. Um, but that's all part of the experience and that's what keeps bringing us back every single time. Mm. And what's normally a nice walk down the creek, once you get down onto that creek line, which used to be the border, the um, the road side of that creek used to be all exclusion zone. Right? Okay. And then the other side of the creek was always open. And that's chopped and changed a few yeah. times. But a lot of the, a lot over, over the last sort of six years, the section from the road to the creek has been exclusion. And funnily enough, whenever you walk down that creek, the pigs jump up out of the out of the creek and straight towards the road. So you can't hunt them anyway. So mm. they were smart enough to do that. Yeah. We've seen some nice pigs jump up out of there. Um, you didn't get down to the bottom. Did you get down to any of the cascading water? Like there's some, some rock waterfalls and things down the bottom? We um, saw the gorge, but we scooted around it. So we left. We came out of it. So the that significant creek line that runs through the southern block, we got down to, I suppose, a junction with one of the little drains that drain into it. And in all honesty, it was, you know, pristine pig country. It was green as green can be, you know, in the middle of the the water. There was, you know, a couple of um, well-established gums. It, very, very pretty, very, very, um, you know, scenic. The grass, as I said, was green. There was water on the ground. The thing is, you would not have been able to see a pig in it unless you stepped on the pig. Yeah, okay. So um, we had a. It was certainly well worth the, the the walk, and I actually thought, you know, 
if you could get in there a little bit easier, that would be a great place to stake out. You'd would, you would you would most definitely see something throughout the day down there. Um, so it was certainly a tough walk, but it was worth it getting in there. The question was what was on the other side of it, and we decided not to answer that question. We yeah, decided right to basically loop back out. So I've just given John the map. Just give us a look where you went. Yeah, so we um, we dropped down sort of where we are in camp at the moment. We're on sort of the highest point um, up against the, the boundary fence at the top. Um, and we dropped down. We stalked down to that first dam. Um, and then we actually cut across the, the main the main track through through the park, which divides north to south. Um, we stalked up to, to that top dam. Hmm. Um, and then we dropped down from there followed the, the the hard ground um, and then we dropped down into those those drainages um, and we followed it down for what probably okay maybe where do you think where do you think you got down to we, we we came down this this drainage this little tributary that comes yeah, down okay. onto the main yep. channel we kept going a little bit further uh, and we were aiming to go for the corner but we, we cut it short by a couple hundred meters um, so that, that was the goal was to get down to the corner and avoid that really thick stuff down here that you told us about. Yeah, this so, is pretty gnarly in here. So yeah. we wanted to avoid that. So the goal was to get to the corner. We cut it short by a couple This corner meters. on the road? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, if you were going to run that again, I think the best part of the river, of the creek, starts here yeah. and goes down. Yeah. And this area over here in this high country here, there's lots of rock formations that you find. Goats go and hang out over there because they just don't get the pressure. Yeah. It's too hard to get That to. creek line where it hit, almost where it hits the private land it's almost like a delta there it opens right yeah. up and yeah. it's it is that's kind of where we were thinking and going but we decided to not not push all the way down there it but must, I, be, must be nice do you get any, any photos uh got video yeah i've got some photos the rocks and some of the i've been just really interested lines. to see how overgrown it is because i hear about it all the time but well i just because of that i don't go down there anymore the way we used to approach it is actually go down through that really mongrel country to begin with and get to that delta area start in that area and then but the t today the wind wasn't right so we you know the wind pushes that way yeah and the other thing is too i tried very much to avoid that regrowth area because one i reckon once you're in that you're not hunting any anymore you're just bashing so it certainly wasn't a straight line i'm just trying to keep picking lanes that you can actually see where you're going because i know you kind of get in the go okay let's let's push through it but when you're doing that you're not hunting you're just making noise and yeah, yeah. And there was just nothing in there we didn't see anything you know yeah. any any um, game trails or anything through that thick stuff it was just there was a, a band of burr country and i reckon um not much was moving through that there was no not much game through it certainly nothing it was eating those things it was they weren't topped or anything like that they're all flowered they weren't topped. There was no cut through. So I think most things are just avoiding it. Um, and they they can because there's, uh, at the moment, there's so much groundwater here and so much good pick. Why would you? Why would you? Yeah. Okay. Well, at least you had a crack. And you're, that was it. was good to see. the most. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why we went down that way today was to, you know, get the real hard block done first and i know on the north side there's some real steep country but we knew that was going to be a challenge we knew it was going to be thick rough stuff so we thought well let's do that today and have a look and if we get lucky we get lucky um unfortunately we didn't so um look i'd love to to explore further down you know closer to that exclusion um and we'll save that for another trip i think but i think the plan for tomorrow is to spend a bit more time up on this north side where there's a bit more um good country and we know there's animals here because you guys have seen seen lots and taken lots over the years 
Um, so hopefully tomorrow we have a bit more luck. Mm, and certainly a lot of the listeners that have been following the Severne story have been um, sending in photos and sending in success stories and there's been quite a bit of activity over the last um, couple of months. This afternoon we, we, we went and had a look, look down that way and um, there's been timber clearing for a couple of years in here. There's actually now, for when I was here a few years ago, there's places that were at the time very heavily wooded that are now quite clear there's some nice new clear lanes so and there's one that basically it's about a 2k walk between the track and the main road so i actually think with the wind being right it would be interesting to move that try some of those lanes as well and of course there's the rock country around the other side so there's there's still plenty to look at in the next couple of days yeah good righto what's next on the list well Look, we always get questions about gear and we've put a couple of gear videos together, but why don't we use this as an opportunity to give some detail on gear? Rightio. Top down or bottom up? Oh, uh, well, uh, I'll, okay, so I'll ask you, Ian, rifle. So I'm, I'm not a massive, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of rifles, don't get me wrong, but I'm not a gearhead when it comes to rifles, so um, I tend to follow the trends. Um, I picked up a... a a 270 with some advice from uh, Peter Lurz way back in the day and I used that for 15 years before it got full of gravel and crap because I didn't look after it very well and eventually I dropped it and the scope died so um, at that point I decided I was going to um, have a look at what else was around and sell a few different things and I ended up with a, um, a Tika uh, T3X Ultralight uh, in 7mm rim mag um, I wanted to go slightly bigger than what I had in the seven, in the 270 just because I was focusing more on Samba and expect to focus more on Samba and yet it's an over it's overgunned for fellow and various other smaller deer but um, it does the job so um, I want one rifle to do everything and then I can put more money into that and more effort into that um, the other thing was I was on a trip overseas and um, we had a guide come with us uh, mainly as a backstop not as a guide to trot us around the mountains and point out all the deer but just someone to make sure we didn't do anything really stupid and survived a backstop in case we got in serious trouble he could help us out and um, he swore by the tikas um, and you know he's a professional he said um, bang for buck there that's a good pun that one isn't it bang for buck yeah. uh, bang for buck it's um <laughs> he, he said it, it, he just he just can't go past them yes you can buy some some uh, some really nice expensive rifles that um, are probably you know definitely better quality but you know, for trotting them around the bush as much as he does, he, he just highly rated them for accuracy and durability, so that was good. And um, he um, he spoke to us more about optics and projectiles that go in those rifles than the rifle itself. Um, funnily enough, you know, when we spotted some deer on the opposite face while we were over there, would have been 350, 400 metres, he went to each one of us, what are you shooting and what's the projectile? What are you shooting and what's the projectile? Well, when I'm shooting the 270 and I've got Remington core locks, he said, well, you're not shooting. Went over to the next guy, what are you shooting? He goes, oh, I've got Barnes, something, somethings, and I've got to set, you're up. And he selected the shooter based on the projectile and the rifle combination um, over anything else because, you know, getting a Remington core locked um, across two gullies uh, at 400 metres, it just probably wasn't going to happen. But back to the rifle, um, that's what I ended up with, and I topped it with a... Um, a Sig Sawyer BDX combo, which is an auto ranging scope. Um, it pairs to my rangefinder uh, or a pair of binoculars if you get the right pairing. 
and Bluetooth to your phone so that you can load your bullet profile. So I can have a number of different bullet profiles um, ready to go. So I use a, um, a Hornady, a couple of different Hornady rounds. Um, and I have two different rounds that I use, mainly because there was a shortage in the ELDXs. So I went to the SSTs because there was stock and um, actually found out that they shot better, which was nice. Um, but they, um, the app allows you to just load the profile that you're taking hunting with you that day and it re-zeroes and recalibrates your scope for you. And I, I like that as an idea because I do a lot of mentor hunting and um, you know taking people out for their first deer and, and I just wanted something that was going to be quick to acquire at distance and not have to muck around with ballistics charts and things like that if something went slightly south. Um, so yeah, that's that's me. And that's as much as I get into rifles. Do I? So I, uh, I'm in agreement with you there, Ian. I've got a ticket too. Love it. Um, I remember a few years ago, I, uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine who was a, a deer stalker in the UK and, and he said to me that a rifle is a tool, it's not something you look at, um, so get something that works and something that works well um, and it'll never let you down. I'm, a, I'm um, a true believer that it's it's not just a rifle, it's a walking stick, it's a shovel, it's an everything yeah. else to get you up a hill. So for me, the, the, the Tika, I've got a Tika T3 and 308, um, I use the 308 for um, red deer, for fallow, for goats, for pigs, I've shot everything, I'm, I agree with... You know, one rifle for, for everything, get to know it, get to know what that bullet's doing, you know where it's going to go, um, you know what that, that bullet's going to do, what it's going to do on the animal, you can you can predict what it's going to do. Um, so for me, the Tika, absolute workhorse. Um, I've got the T3 Lite, which is the older model, um, before the T3X, but still awesome synthetic stock, it's nice and light. Um, I can carry it all day on the hills, don't have to worry about it. Um, and then from a scope perspective, I'm actually using a new scope on this trip. Um, so I upgraded or replaced my, my Leopold with a uh, Miopta, Miopta Optica 6. I went for the, uh, the European optics. Um, I've used Swarovski's in the past and I think the European optics are, are brilliant, but the budget didn't allow me to, to go for that, unfortunately. So I've heard some very, very good things about the uh, Miopta. So I thought I'd give it a shot. Um, and I haven't given it a shot yet. I'm still waiting to, uh, to line up on an animal, but um, so far the glass looks good. It's very comfortable on the rifle. r leaf's all good. Uh, from a bullet perspective, I'm using Remingtons on this trip. Um, I usually use Federal, um, but short supply at the time and the ones that were available were very expensive. Um, I had some old Remingtons in the uh, in the ammo box and when I went to go zero the new scope, I thought oh, I'm just going to have a couple bangs with this just to get it close enough and first shots that it was shooting on the money. Um, so that's 168 grain that I'm shooting in the uh, in the 308 and they're super accurate. That'll take care of a goat. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully on red deer. So that's not the core locks. That's the, uh, the the premium bullet that they've got. Um, so I haven't seen it, um, you know, what it does on an animal yet. But we'll, once hopefully tomorrow when we get a goat, we'll, we'll see what it does. But I'm pretty sure it'll knock them over. Yeah, and look, honestly, in the in the 270, I was shooting Remington core locks for, you know, 10 years. Um, and I went through a whole bunch of different rounds to see which round my rifle yep. grouped best with. And those dirty old Remingtons did a good job. Um, they were cheap, um, they did the job, and I was really only targeting fallow and goats and some reds, and um, I didn't have an issue with it, because everything was under 150, everything was under 100 metres, to be honest, Mo you know, mostly, so it was never a drama. If I, if I needed something with more performance, I was going to have to change. Yeah. But I'd... And look, I think, you know, the 308's probably, or well, it can be a bit too much gun for some of those smaller fallow, you know, fallow dough or a yearling or something like that that you take, but I don't think you can ever have enough 
gun. I think if it knocks the animal over and, and expires it pretty quickly, I think, you know, no suffering, I think. And also bullet placement. If you get the bullet placement in the right place, you can minimize that meat damage and, and harvest as much of that meat as possible. Um, but I'd rather have one bullet, one gun that I know can trust um, than have three different guns and they shoot differently and I've got to try and get used to it again on every trip. So that's mm. my, my viewpoint on that. Bit of a conundrum, that one. Because if you're a new hunter, then that whole um, you can't have enough gun theory is good and bad. It's bad because people can develop a flinch quite easily. Absolutely. You know, um, it's good because you're going to knock that thing off its feet so quickly. Um, oh, look, I wouldn't go. Unlikely. I wouldn't buy a 308 as my first gun to go and to go and learn with. I would well, have hoped that yeah. you've done some, you know, some two, you know, two two practice and maybe some smaller calibers. I um. I learned on on two twos and um, actually one of my first guns was the two seventy and I started developing a, a flinch from it because they can kick a little bit for a you know first gun and that's even with one hundred and thirty gram bullets so I had to sort of retrain myself um, but I was fortunate in that I went to a three hundred eight with a suppressor which makes a big difference mm. uh, really reduces that that recoil and lets you really dial in your shooting obviously they're not legal here that was overseas but that really helped me um, out train that flinch so I agree. I think you shouldn't jump straight into a 308. I think that that'll be a bit tricky. Yeah, you know, and the, and the 270 and the 7mm on top of that, you know, they're, they're quite a bit bigger in projectile. Absolutely. Um, so they can they can give you a boot. So it can be a, it can be a drama. The plus side is, like you say, if you're going to hit it a little bit further back, you're still going to nail it. Mm. Um, you know, so when you get into your second rifle, you're probably choosing one that is uh, more suited for the type of hunting you've decided you like. You might get into hunting to start with, and it's all just fun, you know. Your mates have got a rifle. You go get a light. This is what I did. We all went out, um, had a great time. It was all nice and safe. But I came back. It's like, okay, I've got to get my Australian license because mm. I really, really enjoyed that. But I, I, I never went back to that style of hunting. You know, they were yeah. they, they they had tags for ruse. They went out to help farmers, and you know, it was that type of you know spotlighting and shooting. And yes, there's an adrenaline rush, and it's great fun when you're a young fella and you're getting into it. But I really then honed in on on the stalking and the deer, and that changed what I needed completely. So, where would you start, or where would you offer advice to someone who was starting? Oh, look, that needed a, a you know a deer rifle. We we we've been talking about this in the truck the last you know the last day um, driving around because I've got young kids and I'm, I want to get them shooting. Um, so we've been sort of talking around you know those smaller calibers for for, for teaching kids. Um, probably, you know, and we've been talking about the, uh, the 243 is probably a good place to start. You know, you can get some, I think any gun shop you can go to, you can buy 243 ammunition. Um, and there's so many rifles out there, but there's some newer variants of that. You know, you've got the seven mil weight, but for that one, you, you really want to be reloading. So you can reload those lighter, lighter bullet weights. Um, so if you're into reloading or you're keen to get into reloading, perhaps look at something like that seven mil weight because you can use those lighter bullet weights and, and sort of download it a little bit. Um, and then if you're going chasing, you know, some bigger stuff, you can put some heavier bullets and some bigger, bigger charges in there. Um, so I'm, I'm considering either, either the 243, which would be a great little rifle for fallow um, and even for goats. Um, I still prefer a heavier bullet and a, a heavier caliber for the goats because sometimes you're shooting through brush. Um, those 243s I think could probably deflect a little bit in some of the brush that you're shooting through. That little, little bit of extra weight and momentum behind the 308 will probably help. Mm. Um, but I think a 243 or a, a 7mm weight or something like that for a, for a new shooter is a good place to start. Um, low, low recoil, gives you plenty of options, good availability of ammo, um, and you know, you're not going to develop a flinch from those. Uh, so look, I reckon there's a couple of different things here. One of them is 
if we're talking about young people, as in, you know, teaching the kids to shoot, then a 22 or something like that makes perfect sense. The thing is, as an adult, I think there's a, there's a kind of a different approach here. Now, um, as an adult, if you want to hunt, then you've got to realize you need to buy a hunting rifle. You know, buying a 2D3, I mean, again, of course, it depends on what you're going to hunt, but if you want to hunt medium to heavy game, so you want to hunt, you know, deer, goats and pigs, then you need a rifle that you can hunt deer, goat and pig with. So I think that is also something that you got to factor in. So like for my, my first rifle was an air rifle. My second rifle was a 30-30 because I wanted to hunt pigs. So I bought a 30-30. That's what, the, that, that's and, what uh, the magazines and, told you. Probably well, I was a lefty, yeah. and I couldn't get a left-hand bolt-action rifle, so I bought lever-action 30-30. And that's just kind of how I started. So I was 18, and I went away, and uh, away I went. So I think that's a really important factor. I know there's you know, there's an issue about the, you know, the, 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 the boot and things like that. And so to get around that, and we, we've said this uh, around camp the last couple of days is that if i started again i think the seven mil weight would be a very very good option to, for someone who's hunting so it's their first rifle but they actually want to hunt now if you want to go to the range and shoot paper as your first rifle buy a two to three or something like that you know yeah, yeah, yeah. it'll it'll give you you know you'll have accuracy out to 300 you'll have accuracy out to the the range at the range You'll have lots and lots of fun. You can shoot lots and lots of different rounds and you can learn about your rifle. But if you want to hunt, think about something that's going to kill effectively. So think about something like a 7mm weight or something like that. That would be my go. So Andrew, who came with us out to the Pilliga, had um, spent quite a bit of time at the range with a 22 after he bought his, got his license, uh, decided he wanted to do this had a two-year plan to get himself from getting a license to going hunting and was roughly a couple of years, probably a bit under that. But he borrowed a 22, went to the range, spent a lot of time get, just getting used to shooting. Um, and then he upped himself to a 223 and spent a long time doing that. And that was great. And then ended up buying himself, I'm pretty sure it was a 308. Um, but the comment, there's a couple of things that came out of that. Um, he thought, oh, the, re the recall's, you know, it's pretty solid uh, but there's a difference between the recoil that you feel after you've shot 10 or 15 rounds or 20 rounds at the range you know when you're when you're shooting targets compared to the recoil you feel when you shoot at an animal in fact you don't feel that at all and I made that comment to him um, before we went hunting on his first hunting trip I said you're not gonna you're not gonna remember the recoil you're probably not gonna remember the sound the sound he did remember was me shooting the second goat right next to him he, he remembered that sound but he didn't remember the sound of his own. So that recoil thing is, I don't know, I think you develop more of a flinch when, you, when you've got a, a, a powerful rifle at the range and you're shooting lots and lots of rounds. That's something that people need to consider. I mean, that's a, the whole concept of felt recoil, you know. Um, I think that's really important. I mean, i got a 306. I don't like shooting that particularly much off the bench. You know, after a while, it starts to annoy you, you know. But out here, you know, I don't even, did I take a shot? Oh, yeah, I did. The thing, there it is, you know. So I think that's really important, you know. And I think that's where the flinch 
comes from is the fact that you shoot something that you're unfamiliar with at the range and you shoot it 15, 20 times. So, you know, you buy a box of ammo and you threw that box of ammo. It's starting to hurt, you know. I think even if you are familiar, it's, you know, even if you're used to it, like I used to shoot competition shotgun and people think, oh, 12-gauge shooting, you know, you know, those things can boot, but not, not like a, not like a seven mil. <laughs> uh, you know, I could shoot a, a couple of hundred rounds of, of shotgun, you know, on a weekend, no problem. I would never want to do that with a seven mil or a and, 308 or anything And like at, off a bench off too. Off a bench, that's yeah. right. That's not a particularly comfortable position. And, you know, again, you, you talk to bench rest shooters, they spend a hell of a lot of time getting the right form off a bench. Most people don't even know what that form is. So you get on the bench, you know, you put it on the whatever, the your sandbags or whatever you got, then you try and kind of get behind it on that concrete bench with the, the windy-up seat, and then you're hanging on to the thing. And, yeah, it, it's, it's not particularly pleasant. No, and I mean, even to this day, when I go to the range, I spend more time shooting my 22 than I do shooting my 308 because at the end of the day, the 308 hurts and, you know, when you're shooting 20 rounds, but the 22 doesn't. Um, and I find it allows me to, to really practice to, you know, to have, to dial in my technique on that 22. So I think what Andrew did um, is perfect going from a 22 to a 223, really just showing that natural progression through. I think that's that's a really, really smart way of doing it and having a plan, having a two-year plan saying, I'm not just going to go out and hunt this week with my 308 um, when, you know, it. he had that plan, he had that progression. I think that's, that's a really smart thing to do. Yeah, look, I, I, it's certainly, well, having talk and spoken to Andrew, it's the kind of thing he would do. But, uh, I mean, for a lot of us, we, we probably don't ha- either have the uh, the planning capability or, or the patience. Um, and so you, you kind of jump into it. And I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. No, but I think if we're, you know, especially, you know, you guys who are mentoring a lot of hunters, I think it's it's important to instill that from the beginning, saying, you know, you need to have a plan, have a progression. Don't just go out there expecting to, to walk out with a 308 and shoot goats on the first day because, you know, there's you're going to get the shakes when game fever kicks in. I still get, you know, the shakes sometimes to this day when I see an animal. You know, I've got a big stag staying in front of me. I start shaking. Um, and, you know, I've been hunting for over 20 years. So... It can happen to the best of us. Um, so if you're inexperienced and all of a sudden a big deer stands in front of you or a big goat and you're going to be shaken, and if you're already got a flinch anticipating that 308 kicking, um, it's going to be even worse and you're going to miss that animal or even worse, you're going to wound that animal. So I think practice with those smaller calibers, have a plan, progress. I think that's a really important yeah, piece well, for, look, for, new, you know, for new shooters. Certainly. I mean, again... Knowing Andrew or speaking to Andrew, that you know, it is a well thought out and well considered approach. Um, but I mean, if you wanted to have somewhere in between, think about that caliber and think about what you're going to do with that caliber. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna hunt deer and pig, you know, there's there's options there that don't that will get you in a position where you've got a a comfortable rifle to shoot without necessarily developing a flinch. Um, and I mean, some of the older calibers, you know, they do, and again, also all the, uh, not the older calibers, but the, the development of the rifle in terms of its comfort, you know, I've noticed that certainly more modern rifles or more modern design bolt actions are more comfortable to shoot. I, I you see, I kind of learn on a 30-30 with a, you know, timber stock and to be honest, 
20, 20 shots on the, on the bench. And yeah. You didn't have a flinch. You didn't have an arm that worked. So you kind of just... But also, I think what, what you've said there is important in that don't just choose a rifle, um, you know, based on... You know, don't just... We're, we're, we're saying Tika's are good, are good rifles. Mm. Don't just walk into the shop and buy a Tika because we're saying they're good rifles. It might not fit you properly. Try the rifle, shoulder it. Um, you know, make sure that it fits you properly because not all stocks are the same shape and design and it might not fit you properly. Um, and that could affect you negatively when you come to shoot because if your the length of pull's not correct or whatever that's going to hurt you um so shoulder as many rifles as you can don't just you know buy a ticket because we say they're good rifles find one that fits you uh, and make it work for you i mean that's it i mean that you know that's my life you know the, i own a tika i bought it in 2008 it was a left-hand tika took a year to get into the country at the time it's not a t3x it's a t3 and other than the barrel and the action, there's nothing on that that came from the factory. And that whole thing has been customised to suit me. And, you know, it's got an inch and a half extra in the stock to fit my, to, you know, to fit my frame. I've played around with different scopes on it. I've put, I think it's had about four different scopes over the time. It's, it's gone through a number of iterations. And, it's, it's, you know, it is a, it's a fantastic rifle both you know from appearance sake but also from an operation sake from a shooting from from a rifle sake but it fits me like a glove and that's a big thing you know and you know there is if you're listening to this and you haven't bought a rifle there is a huge variance between brands you know they that they're completely different you know tika seem to be um a little bit longer in, you know they have a longer pull than other i know that for instance when the browning x bolts first came out i thought they you know they were a great rifle i really liked them until i picked one up and realized you know it was significantly too short for me uh i same with the, a lot of the other american rifles even the scout which is a really a rifle i, I like a lot it's short but I accepted that because that's what it is. So there is a ver there's a real variance in in what you buy off the shelf. So getting getting to a shop that has a selection of rifles, as in brands, and picking them up and finding one that seems to feel a bit more natural to you or better fit is a really good place to start. And the other thing as well is, you know, if you're a member of, of the ADA or SSAA when they've got, you know, a range day or a shooting day go down there and and try some of the different rifles that the guys have got i'm sure someone will let you have a shoot if you're a new shooter and you can try all those different you know those different rifles out um and, and find one that fits you nicely and then you can go down to the shop as well so that's always a, an option as well agreed okay packs so now, okay let's give that some definition because that's a you know that can be a pack for a state forest hunt I'll start because I've got a bit of pack jealousy today. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't bring mine. <laughs> so, look, I've got a, um, and, and I'll say the brand, I've got a, a Hunter's Element Day Pack that I've had for a number of years. Which which um, one? I couldn't tell you which How one. How big it, is it? It's a it's quite a small one. I couldn't tell you the details offhand. I'd have to have a look. Um, but it's, it's quite a small pack. It's got enough space for a bladder. Uh, it's got two pouches in it. Um, and it's served me really well. I've used it in Nundal, I've used it in the Pilliga, I've used it now in Severn, I've used it on my red deer hunts, but I do feel I need something a little bit bigger just to put a bit more into it. Um, it can be, be a, it's, I'm sure I know the one you've got. Um, and today I was walking behind 
Mark and I was having a look at his and you know he's got on the outside he's got space to put his um his sticks on that he can actually strap in which this one doesn't um I've got to actually carry my sticks which I don't usually mind because I quite like I use them for glassing I rest my binos on them but at times if I'm going up a big hill or something like that it would be nice to to strap something into the the pack and, and maybe have a bit more for those longer days so um yeah i had a little bit of pack jealousy today but that's not taking anything away from that that hunter's element pack that i've got it's been it's been pretty awesome it's helped me take a lot of animals um it's not something you can load up with any meat or anything like that so it's not a carry out pack but for you know putting in your your day essentials you got your water bladder in there keeping you hydrated you got you know ammo loops um yeah that's one of them the yeah, veil the veil 15 yes. liters that's yes. tiny yeah it's very small it's just a day pack um it's, it's not a day pack man that's for carrying some water and an apple <laughs> so <laughs> it's, and it's, it's, it's for malibu barbie <laughs> <laughs> that's a malibu barbie day camo pack. barbie <laughs> yeah right very good that's that it's a day pack that's that's no, no, two that's, hour pack yep so, smoke pack and and then in front of that i've got a, a bino harness which i use which is also a hunter's element as well um which i find really really useful um i've got space in there to put my binos um which gives me one-handed operation i've got my uh, wooden checker uh, i've got a little pouch in there where i keep my game license and my, my gun license and all that on me at all times um and um yeah it's it's i think a little bit of a bigger chest or bino rig would be quite useful just to put a i've got a rangefinder which i can't put in there not that I use a rangefinder all that often, but it would be quite handy sometimes. Um, but yeah, Mark, what, what pack are you running? Cause... So I run the, it's Sakuyu. That's how you say it. Isn't it? So it's the Venture 2300, I think it is. Venture 2300 Kuyu. So does that now, make that? 230 litres? Uh, I don't think it's 230 litres. That's <laughs> why I was asking. I don't think it's 230 litres because that's like a reasonable size kitchen fridge. <laughs> well, you chase an elk, man. That's right. So, um, so why did I go that particular pack? So that pack's got lots of good features. For instance, um, it's, it's slightly bigger. It's got a good, it's an internal frame pack. The padding is very good. It's got you know good shoulder straps. Got a sternum strap. It's got uh, and um, uh, hip hip belt. The hip belt's got pockets on both sides. Zip pockets. Uh, the internal pocket is just one big pocket. You know, so you can zip it right out. It's then got like a belly pocket on the front, which is a vertical one, which they say is designed to put a spotting scope in. It's got a top pocket and a few other bits and pieces and there's a little pocket stashing inside. So it's got a space for a water bladder. It's got a good space for a water bladder. It's got a little hook inside so you hook it up so it doesn't fall down. Um, it's also, but probably the big selling point for that pack for me is that you can buy that pack in the same capacity in two sizes. So you can buy a big frame or a small frame version of that pack. And I've always suffered with day packs. It's either the shoulders or the hip belts. I, just never both. I'm never going to get a pack that that's a small pack that was long enough to fit. That one, I can do it. Mm. Because you can actually buy a bigger frame for that pack. Now, it's not part of the Kuiu interchangeable frame system. It's a standalone pack. They do have that very very popular interchangeable frame system um that's the next level up this is per 
primarily designed, or I got it primarily to hunt state forests like this. You can carry an animal out with it. There's actually a bit of video of me carrying a red deer hind with mine. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit, you've got to lash things to the pack and carry things on the shoulder, but you can do it. Um, on the chest rig side, it's a really good point. John I brought up about chest rigs because if there's a piece of equipment that every hunter should have, I reckon it's a chest rig. And the reason I reckon you should have a chest rig is you don't glass anywhere as much without a chest rig. That's as soon true. as you have those binos on your chest, you start glassing more. You just, it's kind of, you can't help but use your binos more because they're right there in front of you. I run the marsupial gear one. It's the older one. It's the very, very simple. It's just really one pouch. There's a zip on the front of it, which is almost useless. I mean, you could put something in there. I don't know what. It's got two little side pockets. One's got a wind checker in it. The other one doesn't have anything on it. Um, and I got the extra pouch to put the range finder on it. So I run a range finder and just a simple pouch. Because for me, I actually didn't want a bigger chest rig. I just wanted something very, very simple. The way the, um, you know, the, the I suppose the top flap works, it, it, it opens away from your chest. So you can quite comfortably walk around with it open. And it's got two safety straps that go on your binos, so if you, if, if you drop them, they don't hit the ground. Um, I find it's a really good, it's a really good system. And on the other side, I've got the little Havilon knife. So I've got the, the wind, sorry, the wind checker, the Havilon knife, and the, um, and the range finder. And just to add that range finder, I used to have one of the top shelf loophole range finders with you know, the ballistic calculator and the dit 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 and all that stuff. Sold it. Bought a Nikon <laughs> Pro Staff 1000. Hold it up. Takes range. That's it. Yeah, I think as long as the range finder <laughs> can acquire in low light, that's it. Bing. That's fine. That's all it does. I borrowed one off someone and he, he might feel sad that I say this, but I won't mention his name. Um, and it was, it was just a bit budget. Um, and I tried to use it in low light uh, to spot some goats because I was I, I forgot my rangefinder and I was bow hunting. It's just like forgetting your bolt. Um, and uh, I borrowed his, and in low light it just couldn't acquire. It was yeah. So you get what you pay for. Um, it may be good. I don't know. I don't, don't know anything about it, but um, yeah, I, I think yeah. When buying hunting equipment, you're best off borrowing, begging to borrow, trying as much stuff out as you possibly can and they're making a decision about what you want because it's so easy to get sucked into the cheap stuff so that you've got a bit of everything and really not have much of anything. And that's a good point, especially with binos. If you're going to buy binoculars and you go to the shop, don't go outside with the salesperson in the middle of the day and say, look how good they are, look at that park bench at 500 metres because in middle of summer, outside, two cans with a bottle of glass on the, some, some cake we'll, bottle of glass we'll on the good. bottom, will look good at 500 metres. Yeah. you got to find a place that's dark. You know, there's, some look, great, there's some great brands. Yeah. Like the, I mean, like you were saying before, you're using my Opta glass. Mm. Uh, a couple of guys that I know use my Opta. It, it's really good. Yeah. So you know, five, they've moved good. on to Suaro. Sure, they can afford it now. That's great. Um, but there's some other really good brands out there that do the same, you know, almost the same thing. Um, and I know guys that have gone to the local gun shop 
you know, oh, I need a pair of binoculars. And they get walked out the front, like you say, with a $2,500 pair of binoculars when what they need is the $300 Vortex pair probably to start with. Now, that's not buying the cheapest ones. You can get way, way worse than those. And some of the, the Vortex stuff is pretty good for value for money. But try it out, I think, is important. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to binos and, and looking at those cheap options, I've actually got quite a, a, a good story of how I ended up with mine. So I've got a, a, a pair of Swarovskis. Um, I splashed out and bought them. And the reason for that was I was hunting in um, in the UK um, and I was sitting up in a high seat with, uh, with a, a... I was actually... It was a paid hunt and um, he was guiding me. And we're sitting in a high seat and I had a cheap pair of, of Barnos, um, a cheap pair of Bushnells, which is actually a pretty reputable brand. Um, and we're sitting in the high seat and he's nudging me saying, pointing in the field, pointing in the field. And I'm putting my binos up and I can't see a single thing. And I'm shaking my hands like that. He takes off his binos and he's got a pair of Swarovskis and he, I put them up to my eyes and there was there was 20 fellow in the field in front of me and I couldn't see them through the Bushnells yeah. and I could see them with the Swarrows. So and I went, I, I went I, home and bought a pair of Swarrows. I've said in, in another one of our podcasts, um, make sure you get binos that are suitable to your scope mm. because it would suck so, to be able to see the deer that you can't see through your scope. Yeah. So next story I've got is um, probably a year later, I was sitting in, in a high seat again and um, put the binos up and a, a, a seeker deer comes out and I can see it, right up to hind, that's what I'm here to shoot. Lift up the scope, couldn't see the deer through the scope. Point um, in case. And yeah. so I went home and ordered myself a Swarovski <laughs> scope, which matched the binos, and I could see both at the same time. <laughs> so Probably wasn't where I was going with that, but yeah. <laughs> but that's where I went, got the point. Um, because, yeah. yeah, I got the point, and it was, it, and it worked after that. I mean, I just bought a, and the shooting that I was doing over there, um, I just bought a fixed magnification scope. I didn't need a variable. Um, but you've got to buy, especially optics that are, you know, that are right for the, the type of hunting that you're doing. You know, if you're shooting up close and, and personal here, like you ask quite often in, in the state forest, you don't want to go buy a, a six to 24 or something like that. It's probably not going to give you the best, um, the best experience. You want a low magnification. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously considering for state forest, the amount of game that I see up close, an aim point, red dot or something. You know, for Samba as well, the amount of Samba that I've seen on Samba trips up close versus far away, they're, they're all within metres. Same with a lot of the goats, a lot of the pigs, a lot of everything. Well, I generally travel at three power. Well, I'm, a, I'm wound as far down as I can. Yeah, I, there's some, I'm usually somewhere between two and three on the scope um, for state forests because it just helps you acquire so much easier. Mm, for um, sure. I, I, I've... Well, my scout rifle's only, it's a one to six on the scout rifle anyway, and it sits at two or three at the best. Um, the Steiner, which is a cracking scope, it's a two to ten, and I think it's on three at the moment. Yep. And that's basically where it stays. And most of my scopes do that. And I I mean, it, the only time I actually wind them up is when I go to the range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. So hold that for a sec. Okay. I'm going to go back to packs. And then I want to come back to scopes because I think there's a couple of things to cover on that. Um, and I, I wanted to make a point about packs. Um, there are lots of really good packs out in the market. And um, there are a lot of pack systems out there where you can buy, where you buy the frame and then you buy the pack to go on the frame and you get different size packs. And they're designed for hauling heavy weights of meat. Now, some people will argue with this comment, but very American way of doing it because they have to take out all the meat, right? Um, a lot of us when we're hunting state forests, and this is not all of us, but a lot of us when we're hunting state forests, 
are hunting within a reasonable range of a car, within a reasonable range of a track. You're not you're not you're not walking days out with meat on your back, or you know half a day out with meat on your back. It doesn't work that way usually. Now there'll be some samba hunters out there that do it, but most samba hunters that are going for meat are probably hunting fringe country, which the same theory applies. They're going to be reasonably close, and they're pulling off the the right parts of the meat and they're bringing it back. They don't need those massive pack frame systems that some people buy because they're very well you know. Um, marketed on youtube and various things like that so the type of packs that you guys have mentioned are well suited to state forest hunting in australia um i i dabble with all sorts of different stuff i've got a hunter's element boundary pack which is a 35 liter but more effective than the 15 liter barbie pack Um, but um it was designed for me to be able to put all my normal stuff in it cinch it up and be able to put a couple of hind legs in it you know usually fellow you can easily stick two fellow hind legs and back straps in there and off you go um you probably struggle to put two reds two legs in there oh, yeah. but um i don't tend to choose a pack for day hunting that can carry a lot of meat i i carry other meat meat packing systems in my pack so i carry a piece of webbing with carabiners on it and i hook that through the hocks and that goes over the back of my pack mm-hmm on the outside and I carry that across my shoulders rather than trying to pack it inside the pack. Um, so I'm trying to get, I've got a like a full day pack, if I'm going to range for a full day, stay out all day, potentially overnight I use that 35 litre boundary pack. I use it in New Zealand, um, we carried a, a big red stag out um, and I found that some of the stitching let go, it didn't fail me completely but they were really good at taking it back and replacing it straight away and I've had a, I've had the replacement for four years and it's been really good so you know as a, a sort of mid-range quality pack they do all right uh, you know you, if that's where you're starting I think you're doing okay um, I'm now trying to lighten the weight of everything that I carry and, and on um, state forest hunts like here I'm really like I've got a bladder pack which is I think is a badlands pack which is a bladder and then it's got a little pocket at the bottom which I can whack a first aid kit in and a knife but not much else so it's a bit yeah if you're going for a little hike with your family and you've got a bottle of water in there that's okay but it's not it's not real you know it doesn't have a lot more room for anything else so i've actually i, I really like modular systems when i was in the military you have your webbing and you've got modular systems and all those sorts of things so i run the uh, a chest rig which has binos and the range finder on the sides it has um, my radio and my gps and my eperb it's got a pocket underneath that I can stick a spare magazine for rounds. A couple of little hidden pockets for three emergency rounds and licenses and those sorts of things. It's pretty big. Um, it's, uh, uh, um, I forget the name, uh, Maroka 30 Bino Rig. Uh, I find it's probably slightly too big, but I haven't found anything mid-range to really replace it. Everything else is a little bit small. So I persevere with that and, and, and it's fine. So is that on the front that takes a lot of that heavy technical equipment that I really want fast access to? And I completely agree with your comments that I glass way more because it's right there. And I use it and put my elbows on it and, you know, it steadies my, my glassing all the time, which is really good as well. Um, but what I've recently done is I've taken that bladder pack that I've got, the Badlands one, and I've slung a Hunter's Element bum bag under it. So they marketed a bum bag, which has got 10 different pockets, so it can stash a whole bunch of stuff. So now I've got 
you know, the water bladder, meat packing system, first aid kit, all my radio gear, and enough room for a couple of apples and orange, some snacks, you know, whatever, and a bit more space. Um, and I carry, you know, a, a meat bag and that sling for... And I've found that if someone could make a bit more of a, you know, a, a well-made modular system, I think that would be quite successful, but that's sort of what I'm doing. Yeah, look, with the packs, I've got a meat hauler pack. It's an American one. It's the Outdoorsman's Spur 50, which is the smaller version. So it's external pack frame, so an external frame as opposed to internal frame. And the idea is you can detach the pack from the frame, you put the meat on the frame, and then you put the pack on back the on. And that, as I said, it's a Spur 50, so it's a 50 litre. And that's my biggest, um, well, it's not the biggest pack, but it's the biggest I'll carry when I'm hunting unless I'm going to be doing multi-day away and I've got my old um, Mac Pack Ascent, which is a Mountaineers pack, and I think that's like a 75 litre. Um, that's if I needed that stuff. But that's Spur 50. So generally, for me... If I know I'm going to take a red deer, I take the Spur 50. If I'm doing state forest stuff, I take the little, uh, the smaller um, QU pack, and that seems to work out pretty right. But you're right, you know, some of that modular system stuff, it is very, it's very good stuff. Oh, it's great gear. Yeah. It's great gear, but again, it, it's horses for courses. Is that what you need to be carrying? I find that, you know, I try to carry... What's in my pack, I try to limit the weight of what's in my pack. So this year I run a diff I'm running a different first aid kit. I'm running, um, I've got various things that I keep trying to actually reduce the weight of what's in there. I don't know what's happening, but it seems that every year my pack seems to be getting heavier. So I'm trying to keep on working against that. I was going to say that every year it feels heavier because you get another year older. Um, but, but I'm the same. I used to carry a lot more stuff. Um, you know, I used to carry, I used to carry my jet boil, you know, and, and food to cook and, you know, I used to take my little coffee pot and I used to take all sorts of different things. Um, you know, what else can you stick in your first aid kit? Oh yeah, you, you know, everyone needs a little fishing rod. Um, so you must have stick that in there. <laughs> like when I started doing this, I, I packed everything, you know, cause it was fun and you could do all sorts of things. Now you're just stripping it out. I don't cook food on the hill. Um, the only hot thing I will have on the hill, and I don't take a jet boil anymore, I take tiny little, um, what do they call them? Um, Fuel cells? Yeah, yeah, little yeah. hexamine tablets. Mm -hmm. um, don't mistake those for bloody fire starters from Bunnings because they're not the same thing. Uh, but anyway, a, hexam a little hexamine tablet, they're about that big, and it'll boil a little, a little billy. It'll take you 10 minutes, but you're not in a hurry when you're in the bush, so it doesn't matter. It's great that jet boils boil things in 30 seconds. But I'm not in a hurry. I'm actually stopping for a rest and I want a break. You know, it can boil away for 10 minutes. But the little tablet will boil it. And it's it's minuscule. So if I want to boil, I can do it. But I usually take a little thermos so I can have a drip filter coffee now. And it's it's fine. It's what I do when I'm sitting on the hill. Um, I just don't take all of that rubbish. And you just don't need it. What, what you find, though, is that you, you do need a pack when you start broadening your horizons. And if you're starting in Queensland and then venturing south with clubs into Samba country... You need space for raincoats yeah. and wet weather pants and survival kit because shit gets hairy real fast down there and you need to be able to pull that stuff out of your pack. And that, that's exactly right. Look, if you're hunting a state forest in 
you know, New England in the summer in non-alpine conditions. There's not a lot of gear that you need during the day other than stuff that'll, you know, make you a bit comfortable. Like, for instance, if I'm here um, right now, I don't have a raincoat. I've got a, a, it's actually a ground sheet from a hammock system. But what it really is, is a 1.5 by 1.5 metre tar, uh, ground sheet. Super lightweight. It's about, you know. Heavy duty rubbish that, bag to do the job. Basically. Yeah. It's about that big. It's just, I don't have to, it's just reusable. And if I get caught out, I can make up, you know, I can basically get under that yeah. and, 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 you know, and weather out the, the, the problem. Yeah, I got a two, a $2 poncho from yeah, the $2 that's it. Yeah, you can, you can a, do uh, that. A poncho, just a, one of the hiking ones. Yeah, they they right. fall down yeah. really, really yeah. small. And it's just, that's what, it's that's a raincoat for yeah. here because, but if you're in alpine conditions or subalpine conditions, completely different thing. So I think that's important. But that's, you've got to obviously pack to your conditions. But here, I mean, this morning it was, for I suppose for Queenslanders, it was pretty cold here this morning. I had a, a, a lightweight um, fleece on, which is a bit odd for February, but anyway. But an hour, hour later, it's inside my pack. So, you know, it's really, and, and then, then you're away. In fact, I probably dress a little bit hot because I wear... Uh, full finger gloves and a neck uh, scarf type thing, but I do that for skin protection. Mm. I'm sick of getting bits and pieces of me cut out every year, so I wear full finger gloves to protect my hands because that's where they seem to be cutting them out now. And my neck, so oh, that's hands. it. So I, that's for, and I, you know, I wear my, sh- I wear a long sleeve shirt, I wear it buttoned down and stuff like that. And it's for, it's more for sun protection. So yeah, it's a bit hotter, but okay. I don't need to have any issues with melanoma, so that's why I do it. Mm, fair enough. Okay, so that's packs. Um, let's go back to the scope conversation we're having. Scopes. I don't know what you're going to say, but uh, scopes, think about it this way. You probably spend more time with the scope in action than you do in the rifle action. You know? Oh, that's Shoot. An interesting statement. That's it. You, you know, the shooting part. You might look at an animal for you. You line up. You're doing lots more through the scope than you are through the shooting part. Um, so I kind of think about that way. You actually use your scope a lot more than you do. And to be honest, if you want to argue about you know power and penetration, I I reckon accuracy is final, and scope is probably the thing that helps accuracy more than anything. Obviously, your skill level and that, but a scope helps with the accuracy and you're looking through a lot more so spend your coin on a scope right so what i was going to say about that was this is where you start getting into multiple rifles for what you're doing because unless you've got some sort of system that allows you to swap scopes around people tend to go and i'm guilty of this that's a cool scope it's big it's got this you know telescope looking thing on the top of my first rifle and you've got to cart that bastard around in the bush and it, it, it doesn't wind down to the low power that you want it to so let's talk to the new hunter about keep going <laughs> talk to the new hunter about what they should look for in a scope let's forget about quality for a second let's talk about 
you know, the power and the zoom and the, you know, all of those sorts of features. Where would you go with that, looking back on your history? Looking back on my history. In yeah. this type of hunting. So we're talking state forest hunting, yep. which is, you know, usually spot and stalk. So I started um, in Africa shooting a variety. And look, Africa's got, a, you know, a variety of species, big and small, thick bush, open plains. I went, my first scope was a 3D 9 by 40 I think it was probably everyone's first scope who went for a, a variable. I think you can't really go wrong with that. You've got a, a decent size objective, that 40 millimeters. Look, in safe forest hunting, we're not really shooting that European light, which is on last light, on dark, animals crossing. Yes, you might be in some deep gullies where it might be a bit dark, you know, darker, but I don't think you really need a, you know, a 50 mil or, or, or bigger objective lens, 56 millimeter objective lens. Um, I think it's a good entry level scope, a three to nine, that lets you turn it down to three. Um, when you're in the thicker stuff and if you have to take a longer shot you know for a fallow or, or something like that you can crank it up to nine I think that's a, a really good compromise f for scope for me look there's an interesting quandary about scopes and that is you do get what you pay for and there's a thing about Swarovski everyone thinks Swarovski is not worth the money oh. until they use them yeah, and yeah. they go thanks for qualifying they, I can use that now I'll buy that's it they'll go and after they use they a, after they use Swarovski they, what you do is then you go home and go okay so what do I need to do now to buy one of those things and you start doing the, yep. the, the financial just, just the scope, the you well. start doing the financial funny enough with Swarovski I preferred Leica binos over Suaro binos, but I preferred Suaro scopes over Leica scopes, and that's I had an opportunity to test a whole range of things, and I found that for my eyes, the Leica were better a bino than the Suaros, but yep. the Suaro was a better scope. So then and that's there's... probably got something to do with one of my eyes is you know imbalanced. So so that was it. So with magnification. I've always preferred a lower magnification scope, so I always hunted things like, you know, one and a half, of, one and a half to five. The old Lupol VX3, their dangerous game scope, which is still a great scope. The Suaro Z6, one to six, and um, now that I'm shooting Steiner, which I love. It's a two to ten because they now have that five by magnification range, but it stays on two to three. It's got a luminated reticle. Luminated reticles are a interesting thing. Um, they do get taking some used to, and what it is, and you've got to kind of train yourself, is you tend to focus on that red dot more than what that red dot's focusing on. Mm -hmm. You tend to see that red and not realize it's supposed to be on something you actually see it on the first plane so when you when you look at you know the idea of do you get a 50 or a 56 lens which a lot of people do because they go oh it's got really great light gathering it's great in low light a cheap 56 will not give you the same sight picture as an expensive one to six with a 24 mil lens up front and that's a reality you know there's a there's that's a reality so don't be um don't be blinded by big numbers. 
in yep. in the scope. You know, don't go, oh, this has got a bigger front lens than that one, so this one must be better. No, it doesn't work that way at all. But it needs to be fit for purpose, though. You wouldn't buy but, a, a 56 millimeter thinking, I need all this light gathering if you're hunting goats in a state forest, in my view. I no. I think it's a waste of That's money. it. I actually, um, I'm kind of... To me, there's very few applications where you want a 56 if you're shooting in daylight hours and you're walking. Well, for, for context, I had a Swarovski 8x56 on my ticker that I had in the UK because I was shooting at last light and first light. Mm. That's why I had a 56mm and I went for the best glass that I could get because you were shooting after dark. That's when a lot of your shooting's taking place. I've never shot after dark here. Mm never um you know I, I usually call it before before then whereas that's what we were waiting for was that last light to to take the shot because that's yeah, when I the think, animals are moving i think the deer hunters tend to shoot that last light more than anything otherwise you're spotlighting and it's after dark and it doesn't <laughs> matter or you know you're doing what you're doing here and as we we're talking about it before goats are lazy they keep bankers hours and yeah they're up all day rather than you know getting up early it's a shame to get up early when you go go hunting but you're excited to go mm. uh, but you know you can wander around for a good three or four hours before you bump into them at 10 o'clock in the morning um, deer are different yeah absolutely. so you know capturing yeah. all of that light in that last 10 minutes um, can be all the difference but if you're only hunting state forest for goats then you don't need a deer definitely deer. not definitely no. not but i don't think there are too many people that get into state forest hunting that don't have the idea of no, going, going for, for the trophy game and that's the way it is. But then, then there's also the, the, um, the thought about uh, the scope, technical attributes. So when I was buying my last scope, everyone said, go Suaro. You should go Suaro, especially the guys that had Suaro. Go Suaro. You can't go better. You know, you you know, it, it is what it well, is. Well, got to justify it. you got to buy it because it and makes I, me feel better about my purchase. I've looked through their Suaro and my Bushnell uh, at the time, and there's no doubt one's better than the other. Um, that's the way it was. You but, should try a Suaro spotting scope. Oh, no. I then have, you realise oh, no, that have, that's when you go. When you get up those 60 and 80 mil lenses on the front, that's when you go, okay. I've got a top. Now top, I understand. I've got Vortex's best spotting scope, and like I can only imagine how much better the Suaro one would be. But anyway, that aside, I, I, I was in the market for a new scope for the 7 mil, and um, I'm a tech head. Yep, me too. I wanted the technical scope, I wanted the auto ranging you know, Bluetooth connected, you know, modern scope. I didn't want the traditional scope that everyone's had for, you know, however, however many years I wanted to try out something different. And I had my reasons for it. And I was talking about those before with the mentor hunting and needing yeah. to be able to acquire distance quicker than, you know, whatever, if something was in trouble. And um, so I was, after one of the trips to New Zealand, I was really interested in the, um, the 6 OS scope because that's what it did. And one of the guys that was on the trip out there um, managed to take a nice red stag um, because he was able to range it effectively with that scope. Um, and yes, you can do that manually. You can do all of those sorts of things, but it takes time. Um, it takes a lot more. It's like reloading, right? You get to know your ballistics. You get to know your scope. You, you know, But committing all of that to memory for a hunter that might hunt once a year, twice, three times a year, maybe the season, the rut, the raw, they're not going to remember that. 
going to have to go back to a book trying to re remember how to use their scope, the ballistics calculations. You don't you don't commit that stuff to memory for life, I don't think, unless you're doing it pretty frequently. Um, it's a difficult set of calculations to remember, mm. MOA and all of that stuff. So I wanted to be able to do that, and it's been a great scope, and it's got the Illuminator rectacle. <laughs> get that right, you get in trouble. Um, I have to tick the box that says not fit for children, uh, if I say that other word. Um, and But the good thing about it is it's it's adjustable, so I can turn the brightness of that illumination right down or mm. right up, depending on the light. But it doesn't collect light the same as the Suara does because it's got another pane of glass in there, which is where all the LEDs go. Mm. Right, it's the way it operates. So it is limited in its light gathering capability compared to the Suara. But compared it to a friend of mine's Myopter, it's on par. That's pretty good. And from a technical perspective, is it intuitive? Could someone who's not a tech head use that sort of scope and, and system? If you were to pick up my rifle, and just want to shoot it, knowing that it was zeroed at 200, you would know in a state forest that you could shoot anything by pointing at the game and shooting it, because you don't really need to adjust up to 200. You know, you've got two inches maybe of difference. Especially with 7.0. With 7.0, right. If that. Um, if you wanted to then shoot it to three, four, five, six hundred meters comfortably, you could do that. Okay. Right? All I would have to do is range the target and the holdover dot moves. Right. So and it, is, it gives it you an very angle point. So very, very. Not a tech head, you don't need no. If, if I hand it to you and say, "Hey, shoot," and I'll give you the holdover point, mm. off you go, yeah. piece of cake. Um, setting it up to start with, you go through quite a bit of technical stuff. You know, you get your factory rounds or your or your hand loads, depending on what you're doing. You put those into the app. Um, you you um, pair that app with your rangefinder and your scope, and you go to the range. And you shoot 100 meters. And you say, okay, well, I'm going to zero at 100. I zero at two. So I zero at 200. Then you shoot 100. You range 100, and it'll give you the the, the holdover slightly lower. It'll hit it. And you'll say, yes, that's accurate. No adjustment required. You'll go to 300. Shoot it. If it's two centimeters off in a group, you tell the app that it's two centimeters low and left, it and it auto adjusts to you, which is fantastic. Oh, that's brilliant. All right. Yeah. So it it calibrates to you it's but you can put all of the like it's got a bullet profile you can go i'm using hornaday sst 160 grain rounds and it has the full ballistics just pumped straight into the app you don't yeah. have to go and load it all up so it's got all that stuff yeah burris um eliminator no yeah veracity oh, yeah burris veracity has uh has the app where you do the same thing so but the app had the reticle it's a, obviously it's a patent reticle, and so you go to the app and you tell it what ammo you're using, and it go, it's got a huge list of factory ammo, and, and yep. you give it a number of conditions, and it also and then it basically goes, okay, here is your reticle, here's zero, one hundred, two hundred, three, on what's that mean? So it tells you that on the reticle. Um, Steiner have a similar thing um, with their new. Um, they've got a new reticle, which is um, 100, 200, 300, 400, and it's also got the windage on it. Yeah. Um, it's pretty... So this, this has that. I can turn all of that on or I can yeah. turn it off. So I just run with the holdover dot. Mm. I turn all the noise off. Mm. Yeah. Or I could have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven yeah. holdover dots inside the scope at any point in time, and I can just move it up and down as yeah. I want to. That works really well, and it's got windage and leveling um, on it so I know if I'm off camber yeah. so that's really interesting 
Um, something that I found really bizarre, though, that is it had an ethics setting. Ethics. An ethics setting. So you yourself decide that I'm not comfortable shooting out past 600. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And you put that into your app, and if you're ranging an animal that's past your ethical comfort zone, it won't let you shoot. Wow. It, won't, it won't. It won't give you a holdover. It won't give you a holdover. You could wow. still shoot it if you wanted to. But yeah, yeah, you could. You could guesstimate, which like is anyone quite else unethical, really. Which is unethical. <laughs> yeah. But for the, for them to think about that, I thought that was a bit bizarre. Yeah, but I guess that is that is good. I, t- I turned it off. But I've I've heard that in some, for instance, U.S. states, they've actually banned this. I think the electronic scopes. Oh, um, they're, they're banning in the U.S. They're banning. Um, in a lot of states now, game trails. Yeah, game cameras. cameras. Yeah, um, anything that gives you that ad- that extra edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I don't think we'll ever run into that issue here. Well, but. this is the thing, right? I hadn't considered the way that some of these people were using the, the trail cam. So, so I use the trail cam. I assume the same way as Mark does. We go out into a place that we're we're scoping out. We put the cameras out, and we go back each week and we have a look. Or you might get a really, you know, a, you know, a more expensive one that sends you the photo at home yeah, and good. you can get the photo. What I hadn't considered was I'm sitting down the track. It walks past, takes a photo of a stag, sends me the photo 100 metres further you down the track. On the spot, I go, that's the deer I'm looking for, and I know he's coming. Hmm. I hadn't actually considered people oh. using him as lot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> I wanna that's tr- different. I want to trade up to the to the cell <laughs> to the, the cell connected model, yeah. version. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't. Th- yeah, no. So I can be waiting down the back having my. That's latte. right. That's right. Yeah, you can be at the. You literally be at your car, in your in your you know portable bean bag or whatever it is with your feet up watching yeah. YouTube, and it goes oh bing oh it's there now I'll go yep. I'll just sneak oh, down to my blind and pop it yeah 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 that that's not what I thought. At all, I hadn't heard that use case, uh, but it makes a lot of sense that people would do that. Wow, that is that is different. Yeah. That's that's my piece on technical scopes. Um, if you like that sort of stuff, good. If you're into long longer range shooting, you probably want to be more comfortable with your ballistics and understanding that anyway. Yeah. So relying on the technology is probably not the best answer. Um, for me, like I've been overseas to hunt where I've needed long distance a couple of times. Um, it w- it was a real benefit, mm. really was, and g- gives you the comfort to know that it works. And like I've got some photos or some video, slow motion video, of the shots that were taken through this rifle, and the um, the height was absolutely perfect. Sure. It was only the windage that was slightly up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, the couple of rounds buzzed straight past the the nose, mm. which was in line with the exactly where it needed to be at. 480 odd meters or something it's a long shot yeah yeah and across gullies man so the wind is crazy okay so um how long have we been on for hour and a half um nearly is it time to talk about pants <laughs> <laughs> oh well we've done rifles we've done packs we've done scopes um, bino rigs. I think we've bino sort rigs. of done bino rigs and we've hmm? you know range finders range finders just don't go el cheapo you can get them from ld but don't Mm. Um, we've talked about a cool way to use um, trail cams. Yeah, we did. Okay, uh, so that, there's the learning. Let's talk about clothing. <laughs> sure, let's talk about <laughs> clothing. Let's be waiting for this one. Okay, clothing. So, Jonathan, what's your um advice for clothing? 
I'm going to stay away from pants for the moment, Mark, because <laughs> I'm going to leave that one for you. Um, for me personally, and I think this goes back to what you said as well, is around um, sun-safe clothing. Um, I'm pretty fair-skinned, um, and I've got I've had a few spots that's been cut out of me. So I think you know what you said around wearing long sleeves, sun-protected clothing, really important. I wear you know a hat. I always put sunscreen on. Um, I wear um, the the neck neck scarf as well which is a camo one just to protect the neck uh i always wear longs no matter how hot i am i make sure that it's it's breathable clothing um and just to you know protect the skin i think with the climate that we've got here in australia that's really important um from a pants perspective um i've usually wear my uh my hunter's element pants and they've they've done they've treated me really really well um i've hunted everywhere with them but they kind of let me down a little bit today um no, no fault of their own really but um, I think the conditions here and the countryside just um, just beat them a little bit. Did you read the label? I didn't. No. <laughs> you, know how, you know how Hunter's Element come with like 10 labels on yes, every garment? Yes, yes. One of them says, do not wear in Australian CD conditions. Really? No. <laughs> I know they have like really weird labels. Like I've got one of my jackets or something that says like, you know. Made from 65,000 bottles. No, no, those ones. They... they, they um, that shits me, that stuff. No, it's like, you know, keeps you steaming warm or stuff like that. You know, it, it, it's, what does it say? Something silly like that. It's about, you know, it's going to keep mate. you warm or something like that. But not like, it's going to keep you warm. It's It's got to be kind of like this funky warm, like steaming or something like that, or howling winds or something like that, which probably is relevant to where it was made because, you know, the only time I really wear my Hunter's Element puffy is England. <laughs> you need to spend more time in Victoria. I do. Mm. Uh, I do. I'd like to chase Samba. Um, and I've got the jacket for it. Look, I like their gear. Yeah. Um, most of my equipment is Hunter's Element stuff. Um, I've had various different other brands. I, I like it because... Well, I like to pick a brand and stick with it. I'm the same. Because... Yep. You know their sizes. Um, you can order it online. It's very consistent. I've I've never found that, you know, one size pants fits this time and it doesn't next time, and that's really important if you're just going to buy it online and not have to muck around. Um, I find that the quality of it's reasonable. I've had a couple of bits of gear fail, but nothing serious. And um, yeah, I, they've got everything for all conditions. I find. But yeah, I look, it's never let me down. I've yeah. not had a piece of fail yes and what happened today it didn't it didn't fail it kept me no no it actually it, it, it actually had gathering capabilities it was a feature it features <laughs> a camera a 3d it's like a ghillie suit it's a ghillie suit <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what happened um i don't I, I hate hunting in long pants it just shits me to tears um it's either shorts i mean shorts and by the time you're wearing gaiters hmm. you're pretty much in longs minus maybe a little bit um, in winter, I wear Hunter's Animal Thermals under my shorts. Yep. Um, it, for me, it's about being less restricted. I find that these style of pants that you're wearing, if you're climbing stuff and trying to get up on things, you get restricted in the material. And I find with thermals and shorts, you just don't. It's just freer. So I prefer that. Um, it gets wet. It dries faster. I don't know. It's just the way I do it. It's the way a lot of us in New Zealand tended to do it before, and I just cotton onto that, and I've never changed. Do you wear the Hunter's Element gaiters? 
Uh, yes, but not the snake ones. Okay. The snake so they brought out, i would be meaning to do a review on them, a pair of gators that I bought, that they've only just brought out. Awesome. Absolutely awesome pair of gators. Um, so they, um, it's a neoprene material, and they're basically, you know, yay long. Uh, for those that are listening, not seeing, uh, that's that'd about be about uh, twenty-five uh, centimeters yeah, long, just under a I foot long. Say. They're quite tight. You stretch them around across at the top of your boot, and then and zip them up, and they form a seal around your ankle. So they only go up about that high, up your ankle. They form a seal. So um, I went into a river, and what I've never had in a gator is that waterproofing. Mm. But I walked through a river up to my knee, and I got no water in the top of my boot because the neoprene sealed it off like mm. a wetsuit. Yeah. Reasonably tight. I thought, oh, when I first put them on, I thought this is going to be a problem. It's going to be too hot. Didn't even notice them all day. They don't collect seeds, and they do a great job. But they're not snake gators. Um, but I've never really wanted to wear snake gators. Mm. Okay. Look, I've got some Hunter's Element gear, so I shouldn't, you know, pretend I don't. I got two jackets, and I got the spur trousers, and another set. And that's my that's my winter gear that I wear when we go down below Tamworth so that's what I wear down there generally um, I had a pair of their boots I hate I say I have a pair of their boots unfortunately they're just yeah, they're not so great um, so well, just, I've heard that I've heard that a bit yep. yeah they're just not so good but um, for me I've I've gone through most of the major brands trying to find gear and i actually don't wear camo as i wear solid colors yeah i'm I'm moving away from camo i wear this kind of you know coyote tan and uh, green or browns and stuff like that and i've got a a a swasi top and it's green it's just a solid green and even my Hunter's Element stuff, I don't have. I've they're the green ones. I don't have the um, the uh, you know the solid green rather than the camo ones. But I just don't wear camo. My pack's not camo. I just not a camo. I've, I prefer a solid color with this stuff. Um, gators. I've got Hunter's Element Hunter's Element Gators. I've got the um, they're quite a tight fitting one. They kind of have that wrap in them. They're a good gator. But I think the one thing that um, I, like, I like to say to people, don't scrimp on is wet weathers. And, you know, we've, we've bashed Hunter's Element only a little bit. We may say that some of the gear is not super good, but we're still buying it. Yep. And yep. I'm still using it, and I still quite like it. It's good gear. Um, years ago, I bought a Swazi Anorak just to, you know, it's like a tent. <laughs> You know, you can survive in those things. They're just the best on the market, in my opinion, as far as wet weather coats go. It's an anorak, goes down to your knees, cinches at the waist. Excellent piece of gear. I've had it for years. Not even the mice can kill it, which is great. Um, but, and I say don't scrimp on wet weathers. I have the Hunter's Element top-of-the-range wet weather pants, and I was super surprised how good they were. Um, I wore them in Victoria in some wicked weather, um, there's some funny video of Missy and I um, hunkered down under a tree in an absolute deluge and it was fine. I didn't get a drop of water on me. And they came with some really good features, like they were really well um, designed at the knees so that you can move really freely. I never sweated in them. They come with um, suspenders 
so even though you're buying bigger pants because they've got to go over what you're wearing you don't wear them instead of pants you've got to be able to put them on quickly over your boots over everything suspenders go over the top of what you're wearing and your jacket comes on really comfortable so i highly rate those they've been really good yeah look wet weather gear is something that i'm not particularly afa with um you know mostly hunting in queensland and new south wales you get wet but certainly when you get into that situation where you've got to give that consideration then you need good gear um and you're right you know we have been having a bit of a dig at hunter's element but my wet weather gear or my my winter gear is hunter's element gear and in fact my go-to wet weather coat or jacket whatever you want to call it is hunter's element it's um one of the soft shell jackets it's actually really really good i mean it might not be great in certain levels of rain but it's a if you're hunting winter and it's raining it's certainly a good gear and as i said it there's two jackets that I take to England, and they're both Hunter's Element. One's the puffy, and one's the soft shell. Mm. But I mean, again, you got to think about it. It's not something that we're tested with generally. So when you get into those, you know, those conditions where that is a reality, you've got to think about what gear you need to take there, because you know. Yep, very true. We were doing a lot of New Zealand stuff, and then a lot of Victoria stuff back to back. So we were using the same gear pretty much the whole time maybe one less layer of thermal underneath between the two but um it was really important to have that sort of equipment mm-hmm. um and like i said it's it's easier to bag hunter's element because it's so mainstream now yeah. like it, it's easy to get we should probably uh, apologize there we've had some technical difficulties so there might be a, a little issue of continuity there <laughs> but we're getting around it and um so but talking about conditions and being ready for the conditions and you know you're going to subalpine or alpine new zealand get your gear ready however we were having this conversation today it gets cold here at severn yeah and i've been caught out here it gets cold here uh of some of the coldest i've ever been is here and in other state forests because technically I probably wasn't prepared for it. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so it wasn't so, like so, the coldest absolute. Yeah. It's probably the coldest I felt because I wasn't prepared. We, you know, one year we had um, pretty heavy frost down here and we were sleeping under a tarp and you know it was cold. There was a couple of there was one time we hunted uh, Pilliger in a winter. And it was cold, and uh, again, you know, it was, it was, it was challenging. So you know, you can get caught out um, in probably the least expecting places, and of course, with summer storms and the way the temperature can drop, summer storms that certainly will be challenging for at least a period of time. I think you can get caught out anywhere now. I mean, the climate, climate change. Believe it or don't believe it. If this is climate change. The, the type of storm, like the wet weather we've had this year, could be a cycle, sure. Um, but I sat up here a month ago and it just absolutely hammered down with rain one afternoon. And we went from being like sweltering 40 degrees to looking for jackets and clothes because we just weren't prepared for it. And it was really cold. Same thing happened at Pilliga when it really deluged down. It's funny, we were talking about ponchos in our 
I don't know, were we talking about ponchos? On yeah, this? we were. Yeah. We were, yeah. yeah. We were talking about ponchos. Um, but when you're, when you're hunting in 40-degree weather, when it rains, you welcome it. You don't even go diving for that poncho. You just stand there and get wet because, oh, my goodness, it's just a relief. But then all of a sudden you're freezing yeah. because, you know, you're just not used to it. So, yeah, I've, I've um, camped down in the valley below where we are now and woken up to just ridiculous frosts. Yeah. So it gets seriously cold in here. Yep. Yeah. And, like, and one way that I've worked around that is I've, I've actually generally bring a – pretty highly as in low temperature rated sleeping bag and i just unzip it or zip it type thing you know because um you know the temp it does it does sneak up on you and i mean this morning there was was fresh there was fresh and there was a bit of a wind chill and it was fresh up here Hmm. um so it can catch you out but it's a challenge buying equipment i guess the story there because you can arm yourself for queensland summers you can live in brisbane and buy what you think you need then come up on the range and need a lot cooler gear then travel into Glen Innes Nundal not Severn sorry Nundal and Hanging Rock and Tuggalo and places like that it snows there during the rut um, or can do Um, and then when you venture further south then into the into the snowy um, highlands then it's really really cold so you just got to think about what you've got Yep. And it doesn't all have to be camo. Your warm gear can be orange. It can be blue. It doesn't matter. It's really there to make you live. Um, yes, it's <laughs> nice to be able to have the right equipment to yeah. stay on the hill and keep hunting, but sometimes just get out there and do it with, mm. with gear that's going to keep you safe. Yeah, look, one of the warmest tops i got is, you know, check blue. It's a, sun, it's a swan dry. A swan, yeah. Mm. yeah. A wool coat. Yeah. yeah. A, the same sort of thing goes for boots, um, and n- not on, a, on the warmth side, but I went through a process of trying to choose boots, and something I didn't consider was the type of sole that you got on your mm. boot. Um, I was, you know, I was getting into stalking and bow hunting, and I wanted a really soft sole, you know, gave a lot of um, feedback when you were standing on things, um, and I went to a specific... I can't even remember the name of them in Brisbane, but they were a, a boot company. They sold a lot of um, footwear for defence personnel and, and tactical people, police, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, and I went in there with a specific purpose to buy tactical boots that were soft-soled and all those sorts of things. And they sat me down. They talked about what I was going to do. And you've got to match all of the things you want to do and try and find a middle ground that's going to suit you. Um, but um, what they told me, because we were carrying packs... And I'm a heavy guy, and you know you're loading more stuff on your back. You need a solid sole boot mm. that doesn't really give you a lot of feedback, which is a shame. But if you're carrying a lot of weight on your back and you don't have a solid sole boot, you'll get bruised feet. Yeah, you can hurt your feet. You really hurt your feet. And if and if you decide that you've got a boot that's suited for, you know, stalking around nice and quietly and you know in, in soft terrain, then it's not going to work for you when you jump overseas and go and climb the Alps. And, you know, you're on rock and shale and that sort of stuff all day. And I found that out over there on the hill. Um, I had a reasonably new pair of boots that were nice and soft and squishy underneath and very, very comfortable. There was no sole left on those mm. boots when I got home. They wore through to the to the steel. Um, so I had to up what I was doing. So there's a real trade-off in the boot, I think. Oh, most definitely. And um, so I've got two very different types of boots here. I've got... You know, typical hiking style boots. Got them right on now. The you know Italian Zambalans, but I've got my, you know, 
I got my moccasin boots. Oh, your moccasins. I'll be wearing them the next couple of days. <laughs> so these are the fancy Zamblins. These are my fancy Zamblins because I, I, I like it. Can you lift business. your foot any further for the viewers? There we go. Fancy. That's the sole of it anyway. So they run the Vibram sole. Um, How do you find the sole? Look, these are... Are they resold, or did they come with those holes? No, that, that's that's the sole though. That they, um, you know, that's how they came out of the box. It's a funny thing. Keeping quiet with you, you know, mm. and it's got a lot more to do with the operator than the shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I won't buy anything with a vibram sole. You know, I, I don't. I don't mind a vibram sole. Um, I seem to be able to work. Right. Can I walk quietly? Can in I these? look at your boot? Lift You're your foot up quiet. again. Yeah, I think it's difficult in so the conditions we had. I tend to find that the and I might be wrong here, but just my observation is the Vibram sole is glued on. There's no stitching, right? So it can come away from the base quite uh, easily. Well, the other thing is technically it's slippery can, as shit on can, rocks. It can come away, I suppose, but I've never had a pair come away on a good pair of boots. And the other thing is. Um, Stitch soles are harder to keep waterproof over time. Yeah, I've, for sure. I've had more you got holes in them. I've had more failures with stitched than glued. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I stopped buying anything with vibrant sole just because, firstly, the slipperiness. Yeah. And then I just had a ton of boots just fail. So I've got yeah. a I've got a pair of scarpers, um, which also has a vibrant sole, but it's a completely different. Yeah, glued as well. It's also glued, uh, and they're super comfortable, and they've not let me down yet. Yeah. So comfort was. A thing like that's really important. Comfort's important, but having that suck off the bottom of your boot when you're in wet conditions—if oh, it, it failed on me, I think I would. It's be, conditions, yeah. conditions, right? Yeah. In Australia, there's nothing wrong with it. We're gonna go. We're gonna see these mighty moccasins. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. Uh, Mark wears slippers when he hunts. Um, my granddad wore moccasins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just. Personal preference. Personal I, I had scarpers, same as not mm. the same as these, but I, I wore a scarper overseas, New Zealand. I was wet for two weeks. The soles pulled away from mm. the boot in two weeks. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm taking them into really shit conditions. Yeah. And you get, you know, they're, they're designed for for different things. Here's the moccasin. There you go, moccasin. They're not quite as moccasin as I no, thought they were going to be. That's more than a moccasin, yeah, in I my was, view. I thought no. they'd have, like, folded over at the top with bits of wool and yeah, stuff so in it. Yeah, so... A couple of tassels <laughs> on the front. <laughs> so inside... Like those little Italian slip-on shoes. So, like, yeah, okay. That's a boot. It is a view. boot, but what it's got is it's... It's not a tight around your foot boot. See how the... Yeah, it's comfort. got this kind of different... So it doesn't have, the, like, the rolled leather. It's got... It's sectioned. Which makes them okay. So the benefit of these things in, if it's not hill country, you can just like wear these forever. Yeah, they are so comfortable, and they are quiet. Pretty worn out. Yeah, they are. I've, I've worn these a lot. the The downside of them is that they're not so good in hill country because you can't really tighten them mm. up on your foot. Mm. You know, you don't, you can't really um, cinch them like you can with a proper pair of um, hiking boots so that's the trade-off but for a place like Severn, Pilliga you know flat country these things are just wonderfully comfortable and they don't you know you don't get 
you know, tired feet, as it were. You know, they they are just very very comfortable, and I found that they're incredibly quiet, and they, you know, they they got a level of waterproofing to them. Um, they've got a level of um protection, so they're not delicate by any means, and I think I've had them for about seven years now, and they've been to a number of places. Um, haven't been to England. No. So when I was in England, we mainly wore. Um, Wellington. Yeah, mud boots. Yeah, mud boots, wallies. Because yeah. mm. it's so wet and cold. And yeah. I had a pair of thermal boots and my feet get cold. Um, so I like something that's warm. Um, but over there, yeah, I will really thick socks. Thermal socks and thermal boots. Yeah. Thermal wellies. See, their, their class is what Yang's class is an upland boot. So that's, you know, yep. walking with your shotgun, either with or without your dog, driving quail, like around here at Pelagon. Oh, sorry, Sven. Lots of quail here. That's so, boots. Good. That's boots. What have we missed? Don't know. It's about it. About well, it's it. not it. It's definitely not it. But it's a good. It's a good cover of the basics. Sure. Um, uh, can't think of anything off the top of my head. That should get you nowhere. Not going. I suppose there's a whole raft of tents, sleeping mats, sleeping bags. Which we'll camper do it. trailers, camp oh, well. <laughs> with heaters, yeah, three star, <laughs> four star hotels. <laughs> yes, there is, and I, I've, I've again being a gearhead, I tried a whole bunch of them, and we'll do a whole nother video, I think, on sleep systems. Yep, because um, I went from cheap tent to more expensive tent. I went the full Hennessy hammock, super shelter system. Um, then we went overseas and we spoke to um, the search and rescue people that my uncle knew over there and he was joining us on the hunt. We asked their advice as to what type of tent we should take, or we should be buying. They recommended one tent and one tent only as the, the survivor, the one that doesn't get blown off the hill and we all bought them. Um, and I'll go through that I think as a, at a later video. But yeah, we've gone through a lot of those and now I'm trialling the Elton Good stuff. Um, the ultra lightweight so that I can go the extra ridge and the extra little bit further. So I've gone from, you know, the full tent to now under, almost under a kilo. I've got a fly, a tub type ground sheet and a mozzie net. Yep. And you just throw your sleeping bag in and that's, that's lighter than a hammock. Mm. Uh, hammocks are actually surprisingly heavy. Mm. You wouldn't think so, but they are. But well, anyway, I've we'll just... Bought a heap of, oh, not a heap, but uh, two new tents, a new um, sleeping, um, you know, uh, one of the self-inflating mattresses and a new um, uh, sleeping bag. So I've gone through that process myself. Basically a process for renewal. Yeah. And um, also thought about for, with my boys and stuff like that. So, yeah, I reckon we do sleep gear next. Yeah, it'd be a good one. I... I um I thought the hammock was the best idea in the world. I but I'm... Can't but, stand to well, sleep. I hammock. I had them, I had them, I had them, I had them, I had them. Well, I, I, I did hate them, and now I love them again, and then I hated them, and I love them again. So one thing that I can suggest that everyone that decides they want to go hunting in the bush, in a tent, is learn to sleep on your back. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely learn to sleep on your back. I know you're going to snore. It's just life. Sad one apologize to your wife now but say it's part of honey uh and hopefully you'll get away with that as a comment if you sleep on your back you have a much more comfortable night in a mm. tent you know with a thin mattress than you do lying on your side 
It's just a fact. And you get a better night's sleep out of it. So once you've learned how to do that, hammock sleeping is a lot easier. It took me three weeks to learn to sleep on my back. And I had some pretty uncomfortable nights learning to do it. But in three weeks, every night now, I'm asleep on my back in a couple of minutes. I'm done. I'm out. And it's the best thing. Mm. Yep. Now lying on my side is more com- more uncomfortable. I don't feel comfortable doing so that anymore. Yes, yeah, so I'm used to what I'm doing. But now, you know, I'll go to sleep in a swag and I've only got a thin mattress. Your weight's dispersed across your whole width of your body and you're just more comfortable. In a hammock, you've got to sleep on your back. You can sleep on your side, but sleeping on your back in a hammock, um, sideways across the hammock is also the trick. If you sleep lengthways down the hammock, you're going to get cramps. You have to spin sideways and sleep across it, not directly across it. Um, but you need to sleep on an angle across your hammock and you get a much nicer sleep. My problem with the hammock was down the hill here, way down there, uh, I was sleeping in my hammock and at 2 o'clock in the morning I was nudged awake by a cow. And I didn't know what it was at the time. And if you can think, me in a hammock, as uh, I was I was 130 kilos of bloke at the time, and something nudged me awake and kept nudging me and it didn't make a noise. And I was that dude in the cartoon with legs and arms and shit and spinning and going around in circles until I hit the ground and untangled myself. And it was a, a mob of cows. I'd camped across their movement path. Mm. And um, they weren't impressed with that. And that freaked me right out. And, uh, what's that thing that they hang? It's, it's for the buffalo fly. For the cattle. Oh, like a harness? No, like you'll see if they've got... I think it's for buffalo fly, but they'll put them in a paddock. So basically, they... You'll see them there, this black tube that they have that has the treatment for the fly and the cows rub themselves on oh, it. Oh, that might have been. So they yeah. probably thought it was <laughs> it like one of those. I tell you though, far out, because there was no getting your torch. No. By the time I'd spun around about <laughs> six times, I couldn't get into the hammock. So I was in the dark, floundering around yeah. with something bumping into me. I was pretty scared. It was different. Proper cartoon moment, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can imagine. That's just crazy. So we're probably in there. I reckon we're done. We'll do a demo on sleep systems sometime very soon. Sure. All right. Well, that's um, our first. On site. Yeah, on site, outdoor broadcast. And our first return guest. Thanks for participating. And our first return guest. Thanks very much for having me. So there we go, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm not sure of the... uh, the rationale discussed it probably around. It was wide, gear. Wide-ranging discussion. It was yeah. all about gear, and lots of people have asked about gear. So they have. Lots of people okay. have asked you. So. so tomorrow morning, um, enjoy your hunt. Um, don't wake me up. I'll, I'll, I'm going to sleep in, and then oh, I'm okay. going to go back oh, to I work. You're going to be taking this out. No, no, I, I'm not permitted. I can't. <laughs> Somebody, there's, all the spots are taken, so I can't go hunting with you. Um, I will uh, get up and go and get a coffee on my way home and get back to work. But enjoy your hunting. You've got three days left, and hopefully bins full of um, yeah, fresh hope, goat meat. Mm. Hopefully tomorrow we can find a few. And if you haven't seen it, I've posted the recipe up. Oh, the goat Give curry. it a go. I saw it's it. bloody yeah. unreal. I saw the recipe. All right. Okay. We're out. We're done. Cool. Thank you. See, See you later. later.